It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Magic is making a comeback in Las Vegas, and my guest is part of that phenomenon. He's David Goldrake, international man of mystery, currently performing a 65-minute magical spectacle at Notoriety Live every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to notorietylive.com, and for everything about David Goldrake, go to davidgoldrake.com, and you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And David, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Ira. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Well, you've been a busy man, not only during the COVID situation, while others are hunkered down in their magic castle, you're out there performing and you are also doing other shows besides the ones at Notoriety Live. And we'll get into it a little bit, but I wanted our audience, those who may not know of you, to talk a little bit about your background. You discovered magic at age eight in, I believe, Luxembourg. That is correct. It never left you, did it? No, it never left me. It stayed with me. The bug bit me. And I got very hooked on, and I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> and then you started to perform through reading books, and you used magic kind of. And talk a little about, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit, because I always found that fascinating. You used magic to, in essence, validate your existence as a child. Why was that? Oh, wow. Uh, that is true. I, um, I had a very complex childhood, to put it in a nice way. And um, when I discovered magic, I was eight years old, as you just said it, and it uh, became a means of expression for me that made it so that, that my friends, my family, my relatives all of a sudden noticed my presence. It wasn't in a sense that I was better than them. Or, or more important than them, as in the sense that I knew something they didn't know. It was just something, especially in the case of my parents, that they noticed I was there, that they noticed I existed. There were some, um, some facts in, uh, in, in our family that made it so that I wasn't really the focus of my parents. And uh, magic made it so that I was able to exist for my friends and other people and that I could feel just like I was a person. As you became an adult... David, did you find that you didn't need that element for validation anymore, but you obviously had a passion for magic? That is very true. I, um, I became very passionate very quickly. I never thought it would happen that quickly or at all. And I realized uh, when I was about 12, 13 years old that that's the path I wanted to, to go, to walk and, and, and just live my entire life. In, and that's what I've been doing forever. I realized at some point because I... I've always analyzed the reasons uh, why I was doing what I was doing, uh, trying to figure out if there was something deeper. And at some point, I realized that it wasn't really necessarily, as you said, this need for validation or recognition. Au contraire, it just sometimes it makes me feel very uncomfortable to, to get these wonderful reactions and all this love from the audience. But it was a means of, of sharing something, of, of sharing something beautiful, hopefully, making people feel great about themselves and about life and, you know, help them forget their worries. And at the same time, there was always this little thought in the back of my mind that maybe 
there may be someone in the audience who is going through or went through what I went through as a child and who could be inspired to live their lives, to not let it affect them too long, to get over what they went through and, and to just see someone who, who had obstacles to overcome and who managed to do it. That's, that was part of it as well, and it still is. Do you find that after a performance you do get, not necessarily every time, but you do get people that come up to you, either kids or adults, that say to you that you connected with them and their viewpoint has now changed in terms of going forward? It happens in a different way. Uh, there's obviously the classical and more standards of, oh, you know, you were great and I loved it, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a very regular recurrence where people come up to me and, and either have tears in their eyes or are, or are moved and they tell me, they said, you know, you made me feel very special tonight and, and I'm going home and I will remember what, what I experienced today. Uh, someone even quoted Maya Angelou one day where, where you know, it's not, it's not how, it's not what you experience, it's how you make people feel. And, uh, and that lady was, was so touched. She told me, she said, you've changed my life forever. And that was so moving that those are the moments that I, that I cherish, especially. Do you think, David, that it's not only your background as a child and discovering magic, as we mentioned, at age eight, but is it also the fact that you come from a European background rather than an American background? So you are <laughs> now in an American culture. And we'll get to that in a second, because I do want to talk about your current show. But I just want to have our audience understand your, your background and where you come from and how you create your illusions. But do you think that part of it is that European culture? I don't know. I've uh, often wanted it. I've always uh, also studied the history of magic. And I've uh, realized at some point that the most successful magicians or performers in general were the people who were able to, to draw as much from as many different backgrounds or cultures as they could. And I think that in my case, it may be a combination of, of my European background, my European roots, combined with my, my love for the United States, the fact that I've been here for four years now, I have assimilated the American culture. And, and I think, or at least I hope, that I'm able to combine the, you know, the flamboyance and glitz of the American show business with the deeper history of, of Europe. I guess it is a factor. I involved and incorporate that in my shows pretty regularly. And I see that it does resonate with a lot of people. And if I may say so, I think to this day that it uh, possibly was a huge factor of both Siegfried and Roy's success as well as David Copperfield's success. David uh, had his TV specials here in the United States, but he started traveling in Europe uh, in the early 90s. And, uh, and you could see at some point how he started combining the, the American you know, show business with the European flair and, and the little nuances here and there. I think those, that the combination of those cultures was a, was a big factor for, for both those icons, in, in a sense, I think. It's ironic that you mentioned that. I hadn't thought of that before. We just did recently an episode about the legacy of Siegfried and Roy with Lance Burton mm -hmm. and Fielding West. And we talked yeah. about a lot about Siegfried and Roy, but you're the first, I think, to suggest, and rightly so, that it may be that combination of talent and also the European background and sensibility that really caused them to be unique and causes you to be unique as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and do you think, too, that the, the European mindset is also less ego and more craftsmanship? And I, I'm not saying it to the detriment of any American magician. I'm just curious from a cultural point of view that you look at magic differently, I think, than most American magicians look at it. I honestly don't know. I, um, I haven't analyzed it to that extent yet. I think that um, 
there is a difference in 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 European in the European mentality in general as well as in the American mentality. And I think there's they have one thing in common that I really appreciate in in some cultures, at least in Europe, in some European cultures, but in America in general, and that's meritocracy. Uh, if, if people see that you really work hard at your craft or your art, they will appreciate and honor it. And that's something uh, that I that I love about both cultures. Uh, as regards the the more you know the diligence, I think there is potentially more depth in in some European approaches, but I wouldn't say, or I don't think that it's necessarily a distinguishing trait. Ironically, because I think you're guilty of this, you are a workaholic, and that is primarily primarily an American trait, but it's clear that uh, when I first met you, you were you are definitely and still are a workaholic. You you are committed to your craft. You don't stop. You know you can get discouraged about something, especially with COVID raging through and people not being able to perform. You just you continue on. You know you keep yeah, learning yeah. and working and doing it all, which is which is I think unique to America, but also clearly to those who are driven in some way or who are passionate. That is true. In that, that is sense. True. I'm intrigued by, and we are going to talk about your show in the second half, but I wanted, again, for people to get a sense of you, and I think they're getting it through our conversation now, about your background, because it's unique, it's different than a typical magician. And mm-hmm. one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, I don't remember when you first came to Las Vegas, if you used this term before, you're using it now, international man of mystery, because <laughs> I don't think that that was part of it several years ago. Yeah, it had been used in the past, but I never really thought of it too much. And uh, that's another topic that I've been much more aware of recently. It's this, um, the international or the, the multicultural background that I have and the impact that it has here in the United States. Growing up in Europe, growing up in such a small country as Luxembourg, which is basically the size of Rhode Island and doesn't even have a million inhabitants, I never considered you know, my, my skills for languages, like, you know, as you know, I speak seven languages. For me, that was always normal. Uh, the fact that I've seen so many countries in such a short amount of time as a child or teenager was normal for me as well. And now that I've been here in the United States, I realize that it's not such a given. You know, there's a lot of people who have not had the ability to travel that much or discover so many different cultures and even assimilate them the way I did, thanks to my background. So I never really thought too much of that nickname, you know, the moniker of the International Man of Mystery. I always thought it was kind of a funny joke until more and more people started calling me that way here in the United States. And, and at some point I realized, why, why don't I just keep it? Because it, it has a funny flair to it for me, funny sound. It does. Um, I agree. <laughs> and I was just uh, very, you know, intrigued by it initially. And then I... I kind of liked it, and I said, okay, let's just use it in the promo. (laughs) It's good that you laugh at it, because I think it could be looked at both ways, uh, from a serious point of view, but also from a satiric point of view, just because it has that feel of of a 60s spy series or something. It just has... Yes, yes, yes. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, um, what's the movie called? The Austin Powers movie. I think Austin Powers is called The International Matter of Mystery or something similar as well. Exactly, but I do not think he speaks seven languages, so you've got that (laughs) on him as well. And then the the other thing about your background, which is fascinating, is because of your travel and because of your early struggles and because of you discovering magic at such an early age, that you are able to take what I would call disappointment or failure or disappointing news a lot easier, if that's the term, or a lot more 
maturely than other performers can do. So, for example, with COVID striking, your reaction to that, I'm sure, was different than a lot of performers who grew up in in the United States, uh, because that's all they know is performing, and I feel for them. But you, I think, because of your broader background and sense of history, you can say, okay, this is going to be difficult, but it's going to go away after a while, and things will change. I think that there's some truth in that. In fact, because of my upbringing, challenges, obstacles, problems, you know, hardships have always been part of my life. And uh, at some point, I even felt that without those, I wasn't able to fully exist. They, they were kind of part of my purpose to overcome those obstacles to even even when it comes to other people, I, I'm always very adamant about helping people and, and finding solution. I'm, I'm, I'm a fixer, so to speak, in that sense. It's a, whatever I can help, I want to help. I want to make a difference. I want to, to make an impact on people and their lives. And when COVID happened, I remember very vividly that I came back from Europe on February 18th last year, and it had barely started. And no one really knew what was going on. And when it hit one month later, very intensely, we were all wondering how it was going to continue, what was going to happen. And in my mind, just like you said, I just felt, oh, this is a short-term phenomenon. And it ended up not being that. And I know it was around mid-May, like not even two months into the pandemic, I started calling some of my friends and go, how do we handle it? What are we going to do? We need to anticipate. <laughs> Anticipation was really important. Even when I, when I do keynote speeches as a speaker, I, I always talk about the, the factor of staying ready as opposed to being ready. And uh, that was a very clear sign for me to, to just Think about what are we going to do and how can we survive if show business or live show business or entertainment is not coming back anytime soon, which was actually the case. So um, I was very fortunate to to have that reflex, to have that mindset, and also the this you know the support system, the friends around me, the acquaintances, and my colleagues, who to some extent thought in the same way. That sounds perfectly logical to me, and I think that's why you're performing today while a lot of people still are not, and they're waiting for everything else to open up. And we're going to talk about that when we return. My guest, magician David Goldrake, international man of mystery. He's currently performing a 65-minute magical spectacle at Notoriety Live every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to notorietylive.com. And for everything about David Goldrake, including his speeches and Zoom performances, go to David Goldrake. You can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and Facebook. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. These days, everyone needs a little help. Even if you're starting to get back on your feet, Three Squares Emergency Food Pantry Partners and mobile food sites are still open and ready for you. These resources are available for anyone who needs a little help. We're here to serve our city's children, elderly, at-risk families, and new families experiencing job loss or extra challenges due to the pandemic. Finding a location near you is easy. Just go to threesquare.org and click Get Help. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. 
Welcome back. I'm talking with magician David Goldrake, international man of mystery, currently performing a 65-minute magical spectacle at Notoriety Live every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to notorietylive.com. And for everything about David Goldrake, go to davidgoldrake.com and follow him on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And David, one of those little things that came up in the middle of this pandemic was that little thing called Zoom. And... (laughs) A lot of performers are using Zoom to perform for small groups of people or large groups of people around the world, and, and it seems to be working, and that's part of what you do as well. But let's focus on what you're doing in Las Vegas, downtown, at Notoriety Live. I recently had on Ken Henderson, Notoriety Live Theaters, and it was an interesting discussion of how to make something work in the midst of a pandemic. So tell us a little bit about your show. So the show is... 65-minute show, as you said. It's a combination of smaller magic, stage magic, interactive magic, and grand illusion. It's not the same scope as the show that I used to do at the Tropicana when I was highlighting there for two years, in 2017 and 18, because it's obviously a smaller theater. It's a more intimate theater, and it also allows me to use that intimacy uh, at a different level than I, than I used to perform at the Tropicana. The Tropicana show is much more physical, much more spectacular, And here, uh, I have the ability to connect at a deeper level with my audience. I reworked the entire show in such a way that I could actually create that. And the biggest challenge when I opened the show here was, obviously, were the restrictions that we had to respect and still do have to respect, which is the distance from the audience, wearing masks in different situations, and so forth and so on. And uh, the the difficult aspect of that or the thing that made it so challenging is that in my opinion magic is is something that is very it needs to be tangible not just in a in a very material sense but also emotional sense and the only way to achieve that is by having spectators on stage by by playing with your spectators or participants in a way that makes them being involved in the show and also feel like they're the stars of the show which at the end of the day they are so the first couple of weeks were very difficult, very challenging for me in the sense that I could not experience the connection that I was used to having with the audience. And it allowed me to, to play on different levels of magic. It allowed me to use different techniques to connect in different ways. And uh, I think we have reached that level right now. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting that we will hopefully be able to, to go back to our normal routines in, in the very near future. But it was a really challenging and, and also growing experience for me in the sense that I, I learned a lot. I was able to, to use different techniques in, in a craft or art that I've been performing and using and living for over 20 years. And, and it was great in the sense that I could live and, and discover new, new elements that I was not necessarily aware of before. So yeah, the show is a combination of, of um, interactive magic that happens from a distance which is something that I learned from my Zoom shows. In, you know, I, I was taught or I learned to connect with my audience without having them directly on stage, without touching them. Uh, I think that, that the touch is a very important part of, of show business. It's, it's something that sometimes, you know, by touching a person, I think or I feel like you can discover so much more about a person than, than if, you, if you spend so much time with them just talking. So I... I I was able to incorporate that in the show to have this interaction and yet being distant. I have a certain amount of grand illusion of, of, of major illusions with my assistant. We were able to incorporate very recently, actually, to incorporate 
some sideshow elements that I had at the Tropicana. Since most of my assistants and co-performers are aerialists, acrobats, contortionists, we have a spot in the show where they can shine and showcase their talents. And we're also going to add a new uh, whip, respectively crossbow act very soon in the show, which is uh, a talent of one of my other assistants. And uh, I'm very happy that the show has these different elements that are not just magic, but they're grand illusion, they're more intimate, close up, and, and you know, circus acts or Cirque du Soleil type acts. That's very exciting for me. And it's great that you're able to adapt and adopt some of this because, as you said, there were challenges in the beginning. You have a smaller space, some things you can do on Zoom that you can't do live and vice versa. So you looked at it from a positive point of view and a learning experience. While I think some performers tend to be very narrow and rigid and say, I can only do it this way. But if you can open yourself up, whether you're a magician or a singer or whatever you are, and you could, you could really, you could still prosper. And there's something you said also about magic that applies to you as well, that you feel, you have to feel the audience and make a connection. And I think there are magicians who are very good magicians technically, but they don't necessarily connect directly with their audience or feel the audience. So that's another element of your personality and your background that you need to have that connection. It's a very important factor for me. In fact, it is, I believe it's the, the vital factor in my show. I, I actually even addressed it at the end of the performance now in my, in my current show. I had this analogy very early on in my career. I came up with it because I, I was thinking about my relationship with my audience very often. And, and it really mattered to me to understand what it was that was happening between the audience and myself. And I ended up comparing it to two heartbeats it's um it's a very <laughs> esoteric comparison i guess but it's still how i feel i believe that the audience when they come in they're all individuals they're all sitting in their seats uh, or among their their family or friends and and i'm on stage and when we start the show i think that everyone is still in their own little bubble whatever happened before the show during their day is still very present and it takes a couple of minutes until they become involved in the show hopefully and I've always believed that there comes a point during the show, and hopefully as early as possible, where every single heartbeat in the audience becomes one. So the audience dis- develops this one unified heartbeat energy, and, and I am able to adapt my heartbeat and my energy to theirs at the same time. So the goal is to, to have one single heartbeat at the end of the show, that we create one one synergy where we all feel the same, where we're all in the same mood and the same, you know, having the same energy around us. That's very important to me. It's not about the display of skill. It's not about, or in, in fact, as you know, the best skill that a magician or illusionist has is that you don't see the skill. That's the difference between us and jugglers or circus acrobats or contortionists. When they show us their skills, we see their skills. My skill is to hide my skill. Yeah, exactly. You know, you make the difficult look easy, the easy look beautiful, and, and at the end of the day, at least in my case, I want to touch my spectators. I want to, to make them feel something at a deeper level rather than, than just say, oh, yeah, he's good, he's good. I, I don't care if I'm good. That's, that's a given. Me being good is a given. I have to be good. Otherwise, I don't belong on stage. I, if, if I'm not good, I'm cheating my audience. I right. have to give 200%. 
the accepted basic level is you're good, but you're, you are going beyond it to make a connection with the audience, and that's what your goal is. You have your eye on the ball in terms of doing that each time. Correct, correct. Yeah. And I believe that a lot of, uh, if not all, my successful colleagues and friends, you know, all my colleagues on the strip right now, I think we all have the same approach. It's about connecting with the audience rather than, than displaying skill. Here's a tough one for you because you are such an artist, and that is, how do you balance out the art versus the business side? You, <laughs> <laughs> and in a general way, I don't, I don't want to get specifics with credits and debits and bookkeeping and billing. I, I'm, just fasc- yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just fascinated by the fact that you have to balance always that out. For example, you may want to do illusions 1 through 10, but the finances of ticket sales are maybe 1 through 5 instead of 1 through 10. In other words, is that part of the, of the equation every time? Totally, totally. It's a, very, it's a very difficult process, sometimes a very painful process, in the sense that you, you have a vision. You want to implement that vision. You want to share that vision, and, and you just cannot pay for it right now because the means aren't there. And I remember having this conversation with a colleague and friend of mine, which uh, was about Don Arden when he used to start in show business. You know, all his shows were so elaborate and lavish, and, and every new production was all about the guests coming in and going, oh, what did Don do now? What's, what's his next gimmick? What's, going, what's, what's his vision about today? And then they realized over the years and decades that, you know, they were getting less and less spectacular. And sometimes people would attribute that to, oh, yeah, Don wasn't really inspired this year. And what a lot of people didn't know or think about was that Don just didn't have the budget <laughs> to implement his actual vision. So he was limited by his means. I've had these conversations with Siegfried. I've had it with other colleagues of mine and friends where you know exactly what you want. And, and sometimes you just cannot do it because you don't have the, the means to do it. So you try to get close to that to achieve the best possible compromise. And that's also a very gratifying process at some point, because as they say, you know, necessity is sometimes is the mother of creativity. So you come up with different ideas and sometimes a a $2 solution will create the same effect that that a $10,000 solution would have had. And maybe you wouldn't have thought of the $2 solution. So (laughs) it's a a very ambivalent situation. (laughs) I saw that happen with the Foley Berger, where when they brought it back, but they had a smaller budget and Jerry Jackson, the renowned Jerry Jackson, had to make do with a lot smaller number of people and smaller sets and less scenery, et cetera, et cetera. So it was always a challenge. I, I always think of that. But from your point of view, though, you're chasing, would I be correct in saying you're chasing connection, not money. Unfortunately, you are right. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by that, too, is that, just for our audience to understand, is that you want to get it right. You want the show to mean something. You want the show to connect. If, if it means not having enough money to do three more illusions, you're going to do that because you want to be able to do what you do. That's exactly it. It's always been, I, I consider that my, my biggest weakness in the sense that the show and the audience always come first. And if it means that I will not buy a Lamborghini when I'm 40 or 45 or 50, then so be it. <laughs> because I don't need the Lamborghini, but my audience needs to experience the best possible show they can. And if I can combine both, obviously that's a great thing to happen. But my show has always been a priority. And I know a lot of my friends and colleagues 
struggle with that with that balance as well. I remember seeing an interview with David, uh, David Copperfield, not too long ago, where he actually talked about it. And he said, you know, show business is, is really important. It's really important to combine both the artistic side, but also to be a showman, to be to be a businessman, forgive me. And he, he really pointed out the importance of, of business in, in our craft as well. You know, if you want to be successful, being an artist is not enough. You have to be able to, to run your business, to have a sustainable business, because that will allow you the artistic freedom as well. You know, that's, that's something that a lot of people tend to neglect. And, you know, money is basically freedom. And if you have the money that you need to, to do what you want and to, to bring to life the vision that you have, that, that's the best feeling that you can have. Last question. Do you expect to expand the number of shows? So right now it's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Do you, do you look forward down the road to doing more per week? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, I'm planning to add a one, one additional day, hopefully Thursdays, very soon because things are picking up here in Las Vegas more and more, and very quickly, I think. So I would be really happy if I could add one more day very soon, if I could add a fifth day in the, in the near future, not too far future, not too distant future, so we could have you know, possibly five to six shows a week like I was used to doing at the Tropicana. Well, that'd be great, and, and that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been David Goldrake, International Man of Mystery, currently performing a 65-minute magical spectacle at Notoriety Live every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at 7 p.m., soon a couple more days. For ticket information, go to NotorietyLive.com, and for everything about David Goldrake, go to DavidGoldrake.com and follow him on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. David, thanks for being on the show again. Thank you so much, Shara. It was a pleasure and an honor. <laughs> See you next Thank time. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Anything you want us to be.